1: The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com.
2: Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
3: 1968, in Anaheim, California. Crowds of young people are settling down to see the Who play a live concert. Conversation buzzes throughout the stadium, punctuated with hoots and hollers. The air is clouded gray with smoke and thick with the smell of marijuana. On stage, roadies move and test equipment.
4: When the amp feedback turns from a thin whine into a full electronic scream, the crowd goes wild. It's almost time to start.
2: Suddenly, it begins to rain hard and heavy. Hail falls on people's heads and down their necks. But soon, concertgoers realize that the hail is orange. And it isn't actually hail at all. It's pills. From the rows above,
3: a young man is frantically scattering the pills down onto the crowd. He wears a T-shirt
4: that reads, Orange Sunshine Express. The pills are orange sunshine, a powerful and chemically pure LSD tablet named for its orange color and potent effects. It's the Brotherhood of Eternal Love's own brand of acid, and it's being thrown into the crowd for free.
1: This was the Brotherhood's dream, John Griggs's dream embodied. They were flooding the world with LSD, and opening people's eyes to its transformative powers. They were doing it, and this was Ground Zero. I'm Kate Leonard.
4: And I'm Howell Hargett. Welcome to part two of a special crossover episode of Kingpins. Once again, we're joined by the hosts of Cults, Vanessa Richardson and Greg Polson.
2: Hi, everyone.
4: Thanks for having us. Today we're continuing our deep dive into the history of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, a psychedelic cult and international drug ring known for its widespread distribution of LSD.
1: The Brotherhood of Eternal Love was unique in that it was a drug cult as well as an underground smuggling syndicate. The Brotherhood, which had over 200 members at its peak, operated in Southern California from 1966 to 1973. But they quickly expanded their activities to Mexico, Hawaii, and even as far as Europe and the Middle East.
3: In this episode, we'll continue our journey with the Brotherhood as their influence explodes at the end of the 60s. They ultimately faced their downfall when their founding principles were lost to the changing landscape of the 70s.
2: This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969.
1: From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals.
3: We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, Muhammad Ali's ban from the boxing ring, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all in our new Parcast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts.
2: At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
4: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review.
2: The Brotherhood of Eternal Love was a group of lawless psychedelic evangelists who formed a church and simultaneously a corporation in devotion to LSD and its ability to expand human consciousness.
1: Last week, we followed the Brotherhood's founder, Johnny Griggs, and his followers to Laguna Beach, where they began smuggling marijuana and dealing both LSD and marijuana in full kilos. The Brotherhood transformed themselves from a mere street gang to a multi-million dollar drug syndicate in just under a year. Their small group of 30 original members mushroomed to well over 100.
4: The Brotherhood's wild success caught the attention of their spiritual father, psychedelic advocate and ex-Harvard professor Timothy Leary. He left New York for California and found a new home in Laguna Beach in the winter of 1967. Leary and his fourth wife, Rosemary, took up residence in the block of homes the Brotherhood
3: had affectionately named Dodge City. Laguna's rustic environment and the Brotherhood's mellow, surf-centric atmosphere was a big change from Leary's previous digs
4: at the Milbrook Estate in New York, but he loved it. Most of all, he loved the adulation that came with being the founding father of the Brotherhood's philosophy. In Laguna, he was treated like a revered elder in a burgeoning colony of young, adoring followers. Leary was, after all, the reason Johnny had roared into the
3: Hollywood Hills to take his first hit of acid one year before, a trip that sent him on the path to found the Brotherhood. He began as the Brotherhood's glowing example of enlightenment and ended up camouflaging himself into their fold, eating at their table and quietly
4: asserting his own power. Once in Laguna, Leary began adapting his persona to fit the Brotherhood's. He took a page from Johnny's style, copying the way he dressed and conducted himself. He started wearing flowing robes and a flower behind his ear, just like Johnny, and adopted Johnny's good-natured and grounded vibe. Before anyone knew it, he had also usurped Johnny's place as the center of attention.
2: This was a trend throughout Timothy Leary's life, seeking out adoration wherever he went, he lived for the reverence of his wide-eyed supporters, perhaps more than the philosophy he taught them.
1: An ironic motivation for the man who coined the idea of the ego death.
2: In truth, Leary wasn't killing his ego as much as he was trying to tend to its wounds. Once he was thrown out of the Millbrook estate, Leary's self-image was suffering. At the mansion, his work was supported by wealthy benefactors— But now he was quite literally homeless. It was a long way to fall, and his confidence sunk just as low.
3: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
2: Thanks, Greg. We could speculate that Timothy Leary had the telltale traits of someone with narcissistic personality disorder an exaggerated sense of self, a tendency to take advantage of others, and so on. But as Leary entered the world of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, the type of narcissism he best demonstrated was communal narcissism. In their 2018 study entitled Normal and Pathological Communal Narcissism, Radoslav Ragoza and Ramzi Fatfuta describe communal narcissism as a classification of narcissism that reveals itself specifically in the context of a community. Communal narcissists find themselves drawn to forums where they will have a platform to engage with large groups of people.
1: Leary found that platform in Laguna Beach, and his audience in The Brothers. He preached love and enlightenment, flashing his trademark grin whenever he had the chance.
2: According to Ragosa and Fatfuta, communal narcissists consider themselves to be helpful, empathetic leaders of their community, but also see themselves as harbingers of freedom, happiness, and peace, just as Leary tried to portray himself. But communal narcissists use these altruistic behaviors for their own benefit, in order to build a positive public perception that will garner them even more praise. Even if these behaviors don't necessarily cause direct harm, communal narcissists can be attention-seeking, deceptive, dominant, and manipulative, and their main priority is to maintain their inflated self-image. Not everyone was as taken with Leary's newfound hippie messiah act as Johnny. Leary represented, to many of the brothers, a generation whose decisions they were trying to overwrite. He came from the straight-edge establishments of Ivy League academia, where he led a socialite lifestyle, whining and dining with the rich and famous.
4: Leary was a martini drinker and a meat eater, and the brothers were non-drinkers and vegetarians. And while Johnny was calm and seemed to float above the chaos, Leary was high-strung and neurotic. Brotherhood member Dion Wright
3: was less than impressed with Leary's new hold on the Brotherhood. In an interview with the OC Weekly, Wright described Leary as a "...very charming guy, but he was a very irresponsible hedonist, with a great brain. He had legs as a psychiatrist, but as a social being, he was too caught up with the jet set."
1: But there wasn't much time for Wright and the other brothers to dwell on the new vibes Leary was bringing with him. They were in a business boom, and the brothers had drugs to move. In
4: 1967, the same year that Leary moved to the commune, a brother named Glenn Lind transported nearly 1,000 kilos of marijuana on a flight from California to New York. Glenn carried on board a suitcase stuffed with $100,000 in cash, over $700,000 today.
1: At that time, crime rings could achieve surprising levels of success by making bold choices right under the noses of authorities. The state of technology in the 60s and 70s was largely to thank for this. The lack of computers made regulations loose communication slow, and left gaping holes in the system that criminals walked right through.
3: For instance, airport security gates. Smugglers were able to carry suitcases stuffed with kilos of marijuana and thousands of dollars in cash right onto a cross-country flight.
2: That's a tactic that wouldn't fly today. But in the 60s and early 70s, a passenger could use a fake name to buy a ticket and then check in without ID, Bag checks and x-ray scans weren't commonplace, so anyone could easily check or carry on luggage bursting with drugs or cash. This was just one of the many loopholes in the system that the brothers expertly took advantage of.
4: They were also masters at identity theft. At the time, fake IDs weren't difficult to obtain, and the brothers secured themselves new documents by using the names of real people who had died young. This way, the names wouldn't have driving or social security records attached to them. Using these virgin identities, the brothers could easily
3: obtain driver's licenses, social security cards, and even birth certificates. All they had to do was explain to the clerk that they had been born on the opposite coast, and
4: since, been abroad for most of their life. It worked so well that the brothers generated fake documents en masse, creating multiple identities in just one day. A brother would drive to a neighboring town rent a motel room and disguise his appearance from there he would go to the dmv to apply for a license or the local post office for an expedited passport
2: once the first id was secured that brother would go back to the motel change his appearance again come back the same day get in a different line and run the same scam again on another clerk They'd repeat this several times, each with a different disguise. It was brazen, but effective.
4: And most importantly, difficult to detect. Without adequate technology, there was no way to cross-reference the IDs being created. Some of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love's most notorious
3: smugglers had as many as 20 sets of false IDs. If a brother was caught and jailed using one identity, all he had to do was wait for the Brotherhood to bail him out, ditch the compromised name, and start fresh with another.
1: This afforded the Brotherhood greater latitude in business. They looked across the ocean at new frontiers and new drugs, like hash. Hash, or hashish,
2: is the resin of the cannabis plant, which is dried into a dark lump. Like regular marijuana, it's usually smoked in pipes or rolled into joints. The main difference, however, is that hash has the potential to be three to six times more potent.
3: Historically, this form of marijuana was found in parts of the Middle East and Central Asia. But as young Westerners began traveling eastward in search of mystic experiences, and for the source of the Eastern theology the psychedelic movement was founded on, they also stumbled upon hashish.
1: But hash was almost exclusively found in the East and very rarely seen in the U.S. At least that was the case until the Brotherhood started smuggling it in.
2: At a bazaar in Kabul, Afghanistan in 1967, the Brotherhood found a reliable and cheap hash supplier. From there, their operation not only expanded across the world, but evolved in its sophistication.
4: Their system went something like this. A brother would fly from California into Germany, then buy a vehicle, usually a Volkswagen bus, and drive down Eastern Europe through Istanbul to Afghanistan Once there, they'd load the VW bus to the brim with hash and drive it back through Europe.
1: This is where things got elaborate. The brothers would then stash the hashish inside musical instruments and animal skins they had bought from Middle Eastern bazaars. Or, in quintessential California style, they'd also hide drugs inside hollowed-out surfboards. Once the hash was carefully concealed, it was packed into luggage and checked onto flights back to North America.
4: Then, with freshly cut hair, sport jackets, and counterfeit passports, the brothers would board the plane, trying to look as straight-edge and inconspicuous as possible.
2: Other times, the brothers would use an entirely different method. Once they were back in Germany with the Hall of Hash, the brothers would sometimes buy a German car, such as a Porsche, pack it with hashish, and then ship the car to Canada. There, the brothers would rendezvous with the shipment and drive the car across the border into the U.S.
3: A brother named Robert Tierney, also known as Stubby, described how the international operations blew up by saying... Everybody started traveling and getting involved. You'd be somewhere halfway around the world and bump into a brother, and they would take it from there. It was like the Lord put it there for us.
1: But though it felt as if God was smiling upon them, there was a real danger to smuggling hash. If they had been caught in Afghanistan, the penalty could be execution. It was a far greater punishment than they had risked in the past while smuggling in North America, and there would be no brothers to bail them out. But this was a risk they were willing to take, and they were rewarded for it.
4: When we return, we'll look at the choices that led the Brotherhood to levels of success and exposure that threatened to tear them apart.
1: Now, back to the story.
4: 1967 was a great year of success for the brotherhood of eternal love they had cultivated a network of international suppliers expanded their product line to include hashish and established trafficking routes that extended from hawaii to afghanistan but this venture was mostly a means to an end a way to generate the income to create
3: the product the brotherhood became most famous for orange sunshine
2: Though Timothy Leary's presence at the compound did divide the Brotherhood, there were certainly benefits to keeping a notorious figure of the psychedelic movement around. Leary introduced Johnny and the brothers to Nicholas Sand and Tim Scully, two brilliant chemists that he had known from his plush days at Millbrook. Sand and Scully had discovered a way to synthesize a unique formula of LSD that they claimed to be 99.9% pure.
4: There is no recorded evidence proving Sand & Scully's LSD to be more pure than other LSD on the market at the time. But the claim of high purity was enough to move a drug quickly. People believed that the purer the acid, the better the experience. And users of their product swore it led to mind-awakening trips that opened their senses, as opposed to other brands of acid that sometimes had foggy, disorienting effects.
2: These experiences are subjective, of course, but one thing that can't be denied is that this new LSD was strong. Each pill was 300 micrograms, roughly three times the average dose of other brands of acid.
3: Not only was it extremely potent, but Sand and Scully's formula guaranteed a high yield of pills from each batch. They began manufacturing the pills in large amounts in the late 60s, but they needed a distributor.
1: And the Brotherhood needed a supplier. After their introduction in 1967, Sand and Scully supplied the Brotherhood with LSD, working from underground labs in San Francisco and Denver. They dyed the tablets orange and called it Orange Sunshine, naming it after the song, Back on the Street Again by the Sunshine Company. And when it hit Southern California, it revolutionized the entire psychedelic scene.
4: Orange Sunshine became famous almost overnight, spreading across California and parts of the U.S. in a matter of weeks. It was the Coca-Cola of LSD.
2: This is where Leary's connections came into play once again, except this time they came from even higher places. Orange Sunshine found its way to the Beatles, Yoko Ono, Jimi Hendrix, and author Ken Kesey, even a teenage Steve Jobs would ultimately get a hold of Orange Sunshine.
1: The proliferation of LSD across the country was creating a change in attitude about psychedelics. It wasn't just a drug for the strung-out youths of Hate ashbury anymore. It was being talked about by giants of the counter-cultural scene like John Lennon and Allen Ginsberg. It was a sea change, and Orange Sunshine was the catalyst.
3: Leary seized the moment, and on January 14, 1967, he famously spoke at the Human be in a rally of more than 20,000 people held in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park.
2: Speaking alongside artists like Lenore Candel and Jefferson Airplane, Leary urged the sea of young people to embrace LSD's transformative powers and reject the status quo, It was there at the human being where he coined his famous mantra, turn on, tune in, drop out.
4: The demand for acid was as high as it had ever been, and orange sunshine became synonymous with the brotherhood of eternal love, elevating their reputation from the local underground
2: to an almost household name. But it wasn't the recognition or the glory that Johnny was after. They were furthering their cause and beginning to accomplish what they had set out to do, opening the world's eyes to the spiritual power of LSD. And Johnny's plan to accomplish that was by working to make LSD virtually free.
1: Now with their own chemists on board and a formula that maximized its product yields, making acid in bulk was easy and inexpensive. They planned to flood the market with as many pills as possible, creating a high supply and driving the price down so that LSD could be accessible to anyone who wanted it.
3: Stubby explained the economic philosophy of the Brotherhood by saying, We distributed sunshine for 10 cents a dose. There was nothing in the world that would get you high for 12 hours for just 10 cents. If a person wanted a bunch of doses, the price went down to 5 cents. We weren't greedy. We just wanted people to get high.
2: Johnny especially was serious about the spirituality and transcending potential of acid. The brothers didn't see selling psychedelics as a scam to get rich. To them, it was an honest living. They were selling a good product that they believed could change the world for the better.
3: Every dollar made was funneled right back into producing more LSD and helping the community. They were making thousands of dollars, but they would still hitchhike. They opened up vegetarian soup kitchens and other community spaces in Laguna Beach. Johnny was holding tight to the Brotherhood's original values in the wake of their success. They were a family
4: and he didn't want that to change. But whether he wanted it or not, change was coming and it wasn't all good. On January
3: 17th, 1968, almost exactly one year to the date of the revolutionary human being in Golden Gate Park, President Lyndon B. Johnson denounced the trafficking of LSD and other drugs in his final State of the Union address. Johnson pledged to crack down on all drug distribution in the U.S., declaring that the time had come to stop the slavery of the young.
1: The Brotherhood may have been distributing more LSD than ever before, but the government was catching up. In that same year, police presence in Laguna Beach had increased tenfold— Between President Johnson's reinforced drug laws and Timothy Leary's high-profile marketing of Orange Sunshine, things were no longer as lax as they used to be around Dodge City.
4: Neil Purcell, a young officer assigned to Laguna Beach at the time, made it his personal mission to clean up the town. Purcell and his squad would write tickets to any long-haired kid they saw openly smoking marijuana. He started trailing members of the Brotherhood, trying to catch them making drug deals or doing anything arrest-worthy.
2: To Johnny, Purcell's crackdown symbolized the beginning of the end of an era. Laguna Beach was no longer the idyllic, hippie paradise it had been.
1: And the brotherhood of eternal love had changed, too. It was no longer the community of friends that had been brought together just two years before. It was expanding rapidly, and under Leary's influence, The brothers were courting publicity for the sake of their own glory and profit.
4: Johnny had an idea. Now that the Brotherhood had overflowing funds, he proposed to make good on their original plan to purchase land in a remote area and create a true commune. In the spring of 1968, the Brotherhood put a $50,000 down payment on a 300-acre ranch near Palm Springs. They called it Idlewild Ranch.
1: Wild Ranch was the experiment in communal living Johnny had always dreamed of. During the day, they cooked together, worked on the ranch, and held weekly LSD ceremonies. At night, each young family slept in teepees scattered across the wide open valley.
3: Once Johnny moved permanently to the ranch, he chose to take a backseat on the smuggling side of the Brotherhood. Business was booming and there were other capable brothers leading the operations. Johnny had grown disillusioned with the wild success, and he longed to live a more spiritual and domestic life. He was now the father of two young children, with one on the way, and he felt a deep need to focus on family, both on his own children and on the brotherhood as a whole.
2: Johnny's move to Idlewild Ranch was a way for him to distance himself from reality. Essentially, it was escapism. According to his article in the Journal of Behavior and Philosophy, John L. Longeway defines escapism as a psychological defense mechanism wherein an individual avoids awareness of an unpleasant reality in order to stave off despair, depression, or exhaustion.
1: In Johnny's case, the unpleasant reality was the rapid and ever-growing change the brotherhood had experienced since 1967. The invitation for Timothy Leary to join the Brothers in Laguna had set off a chain of events that had both elevated the Brotherhood's influence, allowing them to better carry out their mission, and fundamentally changed the framework of the Brotherhood for the worse.
3: Members had started to grow hungry for glory and lost sight of their founding principles. Johnny felt his grip on the Brotherhood slipping as Leary's power grew so he retreated to the ranch with his corps members, far from the madness of
4: Laguna. But Leary soon followed, bringing with him a whole new level of chaos. On May 19,
3: 1969, Timothy Leary announced his candidacy for California governor, running against the incumbent Ronald Reagan. This, yet again, drew the Brotherhood unwanted attention from the government and law enforcement.
4: The campaign itself seemed to be nothing short of a media stunt. Leary's slogan, Come Together, Join the Party, was cleverly designed to match his campaign song, the famous Beatles track, Come Together.
2: Johnny felt that Leary's self-serving campaign was explicitly against the Brotherhood's beliefs, and of course, Leary's own teachings. By running for governor, Leary was not only embracing a political system the Brotherhood rejected, but elevating his own ego while putting the well-being of his fellow brothers in danger.
1: The last straw for Johnny was when Leary brought news crews to Idlewild Ranch in the spring of 1969. Leary gave a spirited interview sitting cross-legged in front of another brother's teepee, claiming the ranch to be his mountain retreat.
2: The brothers at the ranch were outraged. Leary had led the press to their private hideout and created a spectacle of their lifestyle in the process. He was putting the Brotherhood's entire operation at risk for the sake of his own glory. Johnny was devastated.
3: That day, when Carol and Johnny returned to their teepee, they both
4: cried. Everything had changed now. And this time, there was no going back. But Johnny would never get to see the worst of it. On August 3rd in 1969, just a few months after Leary's campaign announcement, Johnny and Carol left their children with Carol's parents so the couple could have some much-needed rest. Their third child had just been born five days before, and they decided to hold a private psychedelic celebration to give thanks to the universe. But this time, Johnny decided to
3: try something different. He ate psilocybin crystals, a new synthetic psychedelic that a brother had recently brought back from Switzerland. And in true Johnny Griggs fashion, he ate as many of the crystals as he could. Johnny and Carol retreated to their teepee to await the results.
1: After an hour, Johnny told Carol that something didn't feel right. He sprang up and left the teepee shouting, Don't take the psilocybin. It's a complete overdose. Johnny asked
2: Carol to stay with him for the rest of the night while he slept it off. But when he began to physically struggle, Carol knew something was gravely wrong. She began to leave to find help. Johnny asked her to stand still for a minute, silhouetted by moonlight at the teepee's entrance. He told her, I do believe you are the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life.
4: He said it with a finality that made Carol panic. She tried to get Johnny into a car into the hospital, but he refused, saying, I don't want to go and be busted for being loaded. It's just between me and God, and that's the way it's going to be. But as Johnny's condition grew
3: worse into the early morning hours, Carol insisted he see a doctor. They loaded Johnny into a pickup and rushed him to the closest hospital. Johnny barely made it through the emergency room doors in the arms of one of his brothers before he shivered and died.
2: Carol sunk to her knees in the hospital hallway, screaming, surrounded by bewildered hospital staff and patients. Her lover, her teacher, her best friend was dead.
3: Johnny was 25 passing away just three days before his 26th birthday. But he had died in the way that most befit the way he lived, with the willingness to try anything and everything to enlighten himself. In the end, his boldness was his undoing.
1: When we come back, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love will grapple with the aftermath of Johnny's death as the 60s come to a close. Now, back to the story.
2: In August of 1969, after Johnny Griggs' death at the age of 25, many members of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love were left adrift. The Brotherhood considered Johnny to be an advanced spiritual being. It was said that just being in his presence could elevate an LSD experience. He was their teacher, their leader, and now he was gone.
4: Many brothers scattered. Some went north to Oregon to set up a sister compound, and others went to Hawaii. Carol, not willing to stay at the ranch without Johnny, went with them. But to her, Hawaii just felt like hell and paradise. After Johnny's death, there wasn't
3: a personality strong enough among the brothers to hold them together, and the Brotherhood couldn't fathom replacing him. Timothy Leary may have been the obvious choice to some, but he had become a divisive presence. Plus, he was currently busy with his campaign to become the next governor of California.
1: So instead of anointing a single spiritual leader, a small group of brothers decided to take the reins of the business instead. They were now less of a religion than a drug ring, a conglomerate of smugglers, manufacturers, and suppliers. The brothers divided and conquered, delegating a leader to control each branch of the business.
3: Meanwhile, Timothy Leary's gubernatorial dreams were cut short. Less than a year after announcing his campaign, he was arrested on prior charges of marijuana possession. He received two 10-year sentences for each arrest and was taken to a low-security prison in San Luis Obispo, California.
2: Sticking to what ideals they still had, the Brotherhood wouldn't let one of their own rot behind bars. So they got to work creating a plan to break
1: Leary out. The Brotherhood may have been sly, but a prison break required a level of stealth they couldn't pull off. They decided to enlist the help of the Weather Underground, a radical domestic terrorist group responsible for a string of anti-Vietnam war bombings. But the Underground didn't work for free, The Brotherhood agreed to pay them $25,000 to break Leary out.
2: The brothers spent long nights at the ranch strategizing the perfect escape. After poring over maps of the prison, they found that climbing over the barbed wire fence was their best bet. They urged the 49-year-old Leary to build up his upper body strength so that he could climb over. And finally, one night in September of 1970, Leary took his shot.
4: Leary snuck into the prison yard after hours and made his way across the yard's expanse, avoiding the bright floodlights. In preparation, he had changed into dark clothing, even dyeing his white prison shoes black to avoid being spotted. Once he made it to the edge of the perimeter fence, he started climbing. Once at
3: the top, Leary threw his blanket onto the barbed wire, buffering his climb, and then he had to jump and keep going.
1: Larry was soon picked up by the Weather Underground and reunited with his wife, Rosemary, at which point they were both given disguises and new identities. From there, the Weather Underground helped smuggle them to Canada, then Algeria, and ultimately to Afghanistan.
3: Now, with their last living spiritual keeper across the globe, the Brotherhood lost sight of their sacred psychedelic path. Rougher brothers took over and began to move their business interests to the hot new drug of the 1970s, cocaine.
2: The Brotherhood's passion to turn the world onto LSD had been overtaken by a determination to amp up its smuggling operations, and the increasing popularity of cocaine provided the perfect opportunity.
4: Because cocaine could be packaged into small bricks, large shipments were easy to move and ultimately brought big profits for little effort. The brothers would traffic dozens of kilos at a time for hundreds of thousands of dollars. They established new smuggling routes, moving cocaine from South America and into the U.S. by way of Costa Rica.
1: Brothers would fly to Colombia or Peru, meet a supplier at a safe house, make an exchange, and be on their way. Though the product had changed, the process hadn't. They still boarded planes with fake IDs and suitcases stuffed to the brim with drugs.
4: However, one undeniable difference was the threat of violence. Doing business with South America meant entering the world of cartels, where the Brotherhood of Eternal Love's principles of peace, love, and enlightenment were met with machine guns and machetes.
2: Dealing with cartels meant a need for weapons to defend themselves, and soon the brothers were abandoning their pacifist values. With the weapons came an ever-present tension, and with the cocaine came greed and addiction.
1: The Brotherhood started gravitating away from psychedelics and toward narcotics, and started taking opium and amphetamines in addition to cocaine. These drugs were highly addictive, and they were taking their toll on the brothers physically and psychologically.
2: The Brotherhood was becoming jaded, transforming from an idealistic group of friends seeking spiritual enlightenment into a cynical network of drug dealers profits were no longer evenly distributed among members and many of the group's self-appointed leaders grew greedy buying themselves expensive sports cars and large houses instead of staying on the commune
3: stubby recalled cocaine destroyed our scene it took all the spirituality out and made people selfish we took so long to destroy the ego we were a brotherhood a family beyond family In the beginning, it was really strong. And later, the coke would make everyone paranoid.
2: The greed had bred a bitterness in some members who resented not receiving the same money and glory, while others were heartbroken by the way the Brotherhood was falling apart. Many members switched their allegiances and turned police informant, feeling it was time to usher in the Brotherhood's end.
1: And in June of 1971... Shifts in America's political climate would push their already shaky footing to the breaking point.
4: On June 17, 1971, President Richard Nixon declared drug abuse to be America's public enemy number one. Though the precedent to crack down on trafficking had been set by President Lyndon Johnson three years before, Nixon's press conference officially launched the War on Drugs. Back in Laguna Beach, Officer Neil Purcell
3: finally had the political momentum he needed to look into the Brotherhood more extensively. With the aid of a handful of defecting brothers' intel, he urged the FBI to begin a formal investigation.
2: The FBI finally obliged. They began tracking the brothers' movements, running surveillance on their phone lines and homes for over a year. What they found had them floored.
1: The Brotherhood of Eternal Love wasn't just a collection of small-time dealers anymore. Purcell was right. They were the real thing, an international, multi-million dollar drug ring, a verifiable psychedelic empire built right under their noses. In
4: 1972, grand jury indictments were issued against 46 members of the Brotherhood, supported by a year's worth of intelligence, including testimonies from former brothers turned FBI informants. Authorities now officially considered the Brotherhood of Eternal Love to be one of the largest drug trafficking operations in the U.S., and they were determined to drag all 46 indicted brothers behind bars.
3: On August 5, 1972, the FBI executed a highly coordinated raid on Idlewild Ranch, as well as the Brotherhood's sister communes in Oregon and Hawaii. Agents seized over $8 million in drugs and two underground LSD laboratories. Based on these seizures, the IRS estimated the Brotherhood to be worth over $200 million.
2: Dozens of brothers were captured in the raids, leading to the immediate arrests of more than half of the 46 members originally indicted.
1: A few brothers escaped the raid and continued selling underground, but most fled abroad, including Carol, who had by then married Johnny's former right-hand man, Michael Randall. Carol, Michael, and their children would remain in the wind for years.
4: The indicted brothers not apprehended in the raids scattered. Using their skills to forge new identities, they travel the globe from Belize to the Cayman Islands. They raise their families as fugitives from continent to continent for years, and in some cases, even decades. Eventually, however, the authorities caught up to many of them, including Michael Randall. In December of 1972,
3: Rolling Stone magazine covered the story of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love's widespread arrests, infamously dubbing them the hippie mafia, a name that would stick for generations to come.
1: Soon after that, on January 13th, 1973, Timothy Leary was seized by the FBI in Afghanistan. He was immediately flown back to California, where he was formally placed under arrest. All the while, Leary flashed his trademark grin to the camera crews that flocked to him.
4: But despite his light-hearted front, Leary's situation was serious. His bail was set at $5 million, the highest ever for an American citizen at the time. He was sentenced to the high-security Folsom Prison, where he was eventually placed in a cell next to Charles Manson. However, Leary was luckier than most. Just three years later,
3: in 1976, he was released from prison by California Governor Jerry Brown, He moved to Beverly Hills and lived out the rest of his days writing books and touring as a lecturer until he died in 1996 at age 75. At his request, his ashes were sent aboard a rocket and launched into space, where they continued to orbit the Earth.
1: Unlike Timothy Leary, the memory of John Griggs would fade into the background as time marched forward, although the Brotherhood didn't disappear without blazing a path. Today... More than 50 years later, psychedelics are attracting the attention of the group they first inspired, medical researchers.
2: In October 2018, researchers from Johns Hopkins University recommended that psilocybin, the same psychedelic compound Johnny Griggs overdosed on, be reclassified for medical use to treat depression and anxiety. Although large doses of any drug can potentially be dangerous, Researchers believe small doses can be a powerful tool to manage moods and behavior. As the potential therapeutic benefits of psychedelics are being researched, perhaps one day Johnny Griggs' dream will be realized in a different way, through widespread access to LSD as a regulated form of medicine.
4: But until that day, the Brotherhood's presence in mainstream consciousness has been distilled down to less of a legacy than a feeling. Radical Hope.
1: The Brotherhood embodied the wild idealism of an entire generation in the face of violence, war, and social and political unrest. They represented what so many young people yearned for so deeply interpersonal connection and sweeping social change. If psychedelics were the catalyst that fueled cultural movements, then the Brothers were the bearers of revolution.
2: Thanks again for tuning in to our Cults and Kingpins Summer of 69 Crossover Special.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, The Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer.
3: We'll be back with new episodes of both Cults and Kingpins next week. If you're interested in learning more about The Summer of 69, be sure to check out our new
4: Parcast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast
3: and Twitter at Parcast Network.
4: We'll see you next time.
1: Cults and Kingpins were created by Max Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media, and are part of the Parcast Network. They're produced by Max and Ron Cutler sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden this episode is written by Alex Garland and stars Greg Polson, Vanessa Richardson Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett